KCIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Well, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, we've been gone for the summer, and it's so exciting to have my very first guest be Joel Harden. Uh, not a stranger to the show, Joel's been on before, uh, as you all or should know. He is the member of provincial parliament for the NDP for Ottawa Centre, and... I guess it's fair to say, Joel, kind of the left wing of the party, or certainly one among them uh, in the NDP. So it's always a joy to have you on and to talk about all things political. Uh, so you're back. You're back for your back. second term. And congratulations, by the way, on the win. And it was substantial. I think you won. I seem to remember seeing that you won by more votes than any other MPP in the NDP. Um, which That's right. Is yeah. Amazing because Ottawa Centre used to be considered a pretty safe liberal seat, right? That's right. That's right. So let's start there. Why the change? What do you think it was about your campaign, your um, your time at Queens Park U that made the difference? Well, and I we're friends, Sherry. So I hate among friends to quibble over semantics, but I will over this one little thing, and then nothing for the rest of our conversation. That's new. I don't actually think it was about me. Uh, I, I really struggle um, with the attitude which is common in this profession, which is, you know, that it's my writing, my office, my staff, it's something about me. And I actually think regardless of the political party you're from, if one follows down that road, which is very common in our hyper-individualist capitalist society, you will always be unhappy. I find that this is what I've noticed. What I think the people of Ottawa Centre like is community organizing. And I know that's the case all over Canada, actually. But at, at home, um, we made it our mission, uh, speaking intentionally in the plural there, because yes, I'm the politician, but there's a community office team. There's a huge, dense network of NDP volunteers at home. There's a legacy going back to Evelyn Gigantes, uh, Ed Broadbent, Paul Dewar. Uh, so I benefit from a community that I think is a lot like all communities that has established leadership, but in Ottawa Centre, over the years, it has found a home in the NDP. Uh, not only the NDP, I don't think it would be fair for me to say that it's only the NDP that reflects the community organized spirit at home. I think other political parties will make a case for that. What I think we did in the recent election of the one before it is say, whether it was during the Ottawa convoy, whether it was during the pandemic, uh, whether it was when people were out on strike as healthcare workers or education workers or folks on the front lines dealing with housing, homelessness, and the opioid crisis, we made an intentional effort always, as you did in your career as a politician, Sherry, to show up, to show up and not to say, hey, look at my private member's bill. It's going to solve all your problems. Our attitude was, what do you need? What do you need? And and what people... Who, People out there who are listening to this who are thinking about running for office who, like you and me, are community organizers. The first thing one realizes is you get a budget. You get a budget. Uh, you Most of that goes to staff. So you want to be very you know, conscious and intentional about who you want to work with. Uh, but the office gets a budget. And one can use that budget not for self-promotion, which is common in our profession, but one can use that budget to bring those resources back down to the community um, and to build those relationships, to listen really hard, to figure out what it is that people need, because I believe everywhere in this country, there are unsung heroes, 
doing the hard work that public services ought to be doing. But in the in the interim, um, that's what we did in Ottawa Centre. I think it, it was an approach to politics that was less about the politician and more about getting the work done, doing the work, celebrating the community organizing. And over time, over those four years, um, I think it worked. But it worked, frankly, because I took notes from people like Evelyn Gigantes and Ed Brabant, Paul Dewar, and, and others who have been using this model for a long time. Speaking here to Joel Harden on our first show of the season on the Radical Reverend. So thank you for tuning in out there in listener land. Um, so let's let's pick an example of that, because as you said, mm -hmm. most constituency office budgets and office at Queen's Park budgets go to get the MPP reelected. Let's be frank. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. go on pens and hats and events right. and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. name an example of how you used yours, because I think that's very interesting and very, very seminal, actually. Uh, how did you use that money to, to get on the ground and get people motivated? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in up an example I haven't mentioned so far. So when the terrible tragedy, uh, the lethal case of Islamophobia in London, Ontario, happened June uh, 6th of 2021, so many progressive communities, again, not just the NDP, regardless of who you are, I think that just shocked most people to realize uh, the rise of hate had motivated one gentleman to use his truck as a weapon to kill almost an entire family. So among my Muslim friends, it evoked passions and anger that I had not seen in 25 years of community organizing amongst these friends. And they turned to me and said privately, Joel, speeches are not enough. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. Um, we are going to push the federal government to hold a national summit on Islamophobia, which they did. But we want you and Ottawa Centre to do something conscious about action that brings people together. And politicians and political offices have the power to convene. That is a major power we have to, to convene conversations, to buy some food, get a room, talk stuff out, and then organize. So we built this project, which has also happened in Toronto and London, called Yumna's Walls. And it was named in the honor of Yumna Asfal Salman, who was one of the four family members who killed, got killed on that day. And Yumna, uh, as a teenager, was an artist in her Muslim school in London. And she, if, you, if people listening to this want a lift to their day, I encourage you to look up Yumna's Walls. It will take you to a link to the mural she did at her Muslim school in London, Ontario. And... I went to school board education leaders. Uh, we have one significant uh, Muslim private school in Ottawa called Abrar School, headed up by Naima Ali's, a friend of ours. And I just said, look, what if we had a community project to create murals that talked about the positive work of Islam, the, the spiritual depictions of, of things of faith? Um, and what if that was a community event? And what if we tried to replicate that? And even if it was housed in a school or a place of work or a union hall or a community organization or a shop or something, and it was defaced, wouldn't that be an opportunity for us to bring people together again to say, hey, let's talk about this before an act of Islamophobia becomes lethal? That was the concept behind Yemenis Walls. And it was an idea our team came up with at home. And it really resonated. We had Nine high school principals, superintendent of the board at home, as I said, nine only principal of Abrar School, major Muslim faith leaders, multi-faith, actually. We had people from uh, our Jewish community, people from Christian communities, uh, you know, sign up and pay attention. Um, and that was just working towards one event. And uh, we convened that March, just recently, March 2022, at the community center hosted by the Ottawa Muslim Association, otherwise known as the Hall of Peace. And 
you saw people and it's tricky, you know, people wearing masks and, you know, they're trying to keep our distance, but just the intentional act of doing creative art together that that is going to be like, we're going to be doing an unveil soon. Um, and it's going to be in our constituency office. And this piece of art is going to move around. And the person who led us through the exercise um, just told us that in, in Muslim art, it's common not to do faces and portrayals because it's so funny. The immediate impulse of many people when I raised the study is, oh, let's do a portrait of the family. Actually, it's not in keeping with many Muslim uh, artistic practices. So there was some learning that happened there. Uh, so what we did is we did this really interesting geometric design. I'll send you the picture when it's ready. Um, and I hope more of these things happen because even if they're the object of attack by organizations who dehumanize Muslim neighbors, it's an opportunity for us to use our resources and political office for, for action. I have other examples, but that's the one that I'm, I find powerful as we're talking right now. Yeah, lovely one. Thank you. Speaking to Joel Harden here at MPP Ottawa Centre. Uh, and of course, uh, the Ontario legislature is reconvened and is getting active. Uh, second term, Joel. Surprises, major surprises in your first term. Oh, um, oh boy. I would say one always, and I remember that ha having this sense when I was just a community organizer and I had to push and lobby politicians. And I just remember realizing, oh, wow, these people aren't like, they're just regular people like, like you and me. Like they're not special. Um, they often have some gifts for sure. Um, and, and that happened again when, uh, so many people were thrown into crisis with the pandemic and I was, you know, thrashing around trying to figure out what door, to, what door to knock on, what phone number to call to help in particular people with disabilities, which is my provincial critic role. And um, it was a nice surprise to realize that sometimes you will find an opening uh, at the cabinet level, in the public service, and that if enough pressure can be brought to bear on the government through enough vocal organizing, as you've demonstrated time and time again in your own work, Sherry, um, that opens doors, and that's important. Yeah, that's really I mean, important. And, and to that point, uh, I, I want to say to you know, as you know, I have a left, left, or leftist panel that is invoked probably once a month. Um, that I've never seen uh, any kind of discrepancy between your organizing, getting bills passed, and laws passed that save lives, some of them, and um, and the thought that we really need to change fundamentally the system within which we work. There's no. There's no um, difference there to me. I mean, you do both, you do it all. Um, and you yeah. do that so well. So kudos about that. Um, so there's that, that was a surprise for you. Now you're back uh, and you, are you still in the same portfolio? Uh, are you still- No, I've been moved okay. over. Um, I've been moved over to active transportation and transit. Uh, and when the new interim leader, Peter Tobbins uh, talked to me about it, he said that, well, he knew that I was a, passionate cyclist and passionate about, you know, non-fossil fuel ways of getting around a community. So he knew that already, but what he also knew is that we're in a big battle back home to get our light rail transit system right, the LRT, which has been a total disaster. And another case actually of where we pushed super hard uh, on the government. And after two years, we got a public inquiry declared and we are learning so much, Sherry, oh my goodness, about the private consortium, which includes SNC-Lavalin, pause for gasp here. Uh, you know, unbelievable what what we signed up for and what we aren't getting. Um, so Peter just said, look, Joel, I want you to work as hard as you can with local community advocates across the province to show how public-private partnerships and transit are an absolute disaster waiting to happen. And I'm excited for this work. Uh, I expect I'm going to learn a lot. Um, but 
you know, there's there's certainly some value for me in the switch. I'm going to miss working with so many disability rights leaders who I came to deeply respect and love, but um, they're in good hands with Lise Vaujois, who's the new MPP for um, Thunder Bay. Uh, Okay, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, uh, and Lisa, I did spend a, uh, I was a spell as a, as the deputy deputy uh, speaker, so you you memorize these things. So there you go. Change, but not all. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I just uh, on that file though, um, certainly in the budget, the five percent increase to ODSP was a real slap in the face. People who live far far below the poverty level on um, Ontario disability. Uh, what happened there? I mean, um, you know, both the NDP and the Greens talked about mm -hmm. doubling it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, even doubling it is <laughs> be difficult to live in Toronto on, but at least that's a start. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, is there any hope there of bumping that up? Do you think? Well, we're get, we got 5% in the throne speech confirmed today. It's nowhere near enough. It is sadly the biggest increase in ODSP in 12 years. So that tells you something. And uh, you and I share this uh, history with social assistance, Sherry, and you've written about it in your book about, you know, once upon a time, one could go on social assistance and find an apartment, and feed yourself once upon a time. That was the case for my family when my mom's first marriage ended. Uh, you know, it was a struggle. I'm not going to say it was easy, but with my grandparents and the church of which we were part, we, we got through today, $730 a month on Ontario Works or uh, you know 11.69 a month on ODSP and that's the max benefit most people don't qualify for that um it is just humiliating and what i keep saying to conservative friends when i talk to them about this is uh poverty is expensive poverty is very expensive and i'm married to a um, uh, healthcare professional works at the children's hospital talk to anybody who works in a hospital they will tell you 60 to 70 percent of people who are coming in through the front door are coming in because of social determinants of health, poverty, lack of housing, mental health. Um, we use up a lot in healthcare resources because we do not create an equal opportunity for people to have a decent life. So it's, I mean, the Scandinavians, uh, other places in the world, they figured out that if you have a higher floor, you have a healthier and happier society. And that's why I very much believe in the basic income project. I very much believe in dignity. Uh, that every human being to which every human being is entitled. Um, and I, I think we inherit this virus from the British, this notion that we have to separate the deserving and the undeserving poor. And the undeserving poor need to be put into workhouses because otherwise they are lazy and they will be idle and they will be reliant upon the state. Actually, the state is reliant upon the caring volunteer labor of so many people with disabilities who are the ones who've helped people get through I mean, when you can't make life work on 7.30 a month or 11.69 a month, what are you doing? You're out panhandling, you're out borrowing money or food or, or medications from neighbors. Um, this is actually how life is made livable for so many people with disabilities that I met. That intentional caregiving, which happened long before the pandemic. Uh, so I, I actually think, you know, I would welcome any opportunity to talk to any conservative government member, any government member, who is really stuck in this mindset of charity and deserving undeserving poor because it kills people, it hurts people. And uh, for those of us, like think about what's happening in the hospitals right now, people are stressed out, uh, people are, there's ERs closing at home, Sherry, uh, in, in, 
in some cases because staff are so burnt out. If we did something about poverty seriously and homelessness and housing, we would lighten the load of our hospitals so much and give people dignity and, and a shot billions. at a better life. And save billions. And just in real dollars, yeah. real dollars. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I always uh, said that, you know, when I could afford life on social assistance, um, it was conservative governments at all levels of government in this province, provincial <laughs> city. And so I remind conservatives of that. It's a good one. Keep it in your back pocket. That's a good argument. That's <laughs> exactly. Good argument. <laughs> um, so it can be done. So we're looking ahead to a new season. Um, budget's done. It's a huge majority conservative government and not only that but we're looking at conservative federal leadership where you know basically pierre's uh, polyev's probably going to win um who knows conservatives are up federally as well as provincially in the polls uh this is to many um progressives of whatever stripe um and certainly people on the left pretty terrifying pretty scary um so what's the plan? Um, and, and by the way, say hi to Peter uh, Tabbins, who is the interim leader for the NDP, my benchmate for years and years. At one point, we were the only two NDPers provincially or federally <laughs> kicking around um, an amazing person. So I'm glad to see him in that role. What's ahead? So I'm going to say something that might upset some of your progressive listeners, but I, I mean it. I think Pierre Poiliev is showing us how an actual organizing campaign can work. Uh, one of the people I got to know in the last parliament is someone who just lost in this recent election. His name is Gilles Bisson. I think you wrote about him in your book, Sherry. Uh, but it, it, for Gilles, I talked to him after the election and it was not just him in the truck when I phoned him, it was the president of the Riding Association up there in Timmins, Ontario. And I said, what happened? Like, I mean, he is an icon up there. And I know he had health problems and he couldn't campaign and all this sort of stuff. But they told me that Pierre Poilievre had recently had a meeting in Timmins during the provincial election, or shortly before, I can't quite remember, of 800 people. And that if you go around Timmins right now, there are Pierre Poilievre signs in people's windows already. And there's no federal election imminent. This guy is out there building a movement. It is very grassroots. Yeah, okay, tons of corporate influence, tons of big fishes swimming around that campaign, no doubt. I have no doubt. But the amount of effort they're putting into convening local conversations, getting people excited, using, in my view, very duplicitous, wrong-headed arguments. But it's a very populist, anti-Bank of Canada, anti-people getting in your way, get your freedom back. If you, if you look at Trumpism in the United States seriously and soberly, or the growth of those kinds of conservative populist movements all over the world, they share one thing in common. They are very successful if they're not broadcast out of some headquarters, but if they're brought right into the community. My question is, why can't the left do that? Why are we so reliant on consultants to put out perfect ads? Uh, why did we do a $5 million ad buy uh, for our most recent leader in the recent provincial election when she had been introduced to Ontario three times. Why couldn't we have taken even a fraction of that money, put it into our communities two years out? So we had those kinds of, I mean, yes, COVID makes things difficult for sure, but it's not an excuse not to be present in the community. Uh, I think if there's one thing I've heard back from home, the work that uh, our team, the Auto Center MPP team, Catherine McKenney and others did during the Ottawa Cohen, being present, organizing every single day, uh, constantly trying to convene discussions, let people know where they could get the things they need, how they could be safe, answering any questions, being willing to face uh, angry 
voters and just take it, you know, and, and roll with it. Not not hate, but but take the difficult questions that people will pose. Polyev is out there doing that. And I feel like our movement uh, in the NDP and, and other progressive parties, we are stuck in consultant mode. And we are just going to, if we keep doing that, we are going to watch Pierre Polyev pull off what Donald Trump did in the United States. Yeah. So there's a lot of smart progressive organizers that are saying the same thing. Um, and what I'm hoping will happen in our leadership race in Ontario, Sherry, is we're going to get a leader that's going to stop throwing most of our money to consultants and overstaffing things at the center. And we're going to start bringing the resources back down into our local riding associations, rather like I was talking about earlier and what a good political office does with community groups. The NDP centrally has to do the same thing. Because if we, we're we sitting on a feast of riches, like if we go out to every single community, there are active new Democrats out there willing and ready to be put to work to do stuff. But we generally just ask them to donate, bang in lawn signs every four years and knock on doors, often just saying, hey, will you vote for the NDP? No listening, no persuasion. Um, you know, we we really treat our people like a stage army. And that's not who they are. Like our people are some of the best folks I have ever met. And I've met them all over Canada, big hearted, incredibly talented. Let's invest in them. You know, and, and I, I know there are people who are thinking of running for the leadership here in Ontario that want to move in that direction. It makes me happy. I will tell your listeners, the more pressure that is brought to bear on our party to go in that direction, not the direction of the consultants, um, getting all the money to give us advice that ends up not getting us elected. Um, but the direction that actually empowers our base. And I'm thinking in particular in labor, uh, in working class communities where, you know, frighteningly in places like Windsor, Timmins, Oshawa, uh, where the margin was really close for my friend Jen French, um, you know, the Poiliev Ford movement is making inroads. Yeah. And and we need, we need to get in there with our own populism and stop that. Yeah. Speaking to, to Joel Harden here, MPP, um, NDP for Ottawa Centre, I couldn't agree more. And you know that because I've said that many, many times. I mean, you know, what really burns me, too, is to hear uh, words like the elites coming out oh, yeah. of that campaign. We should be using those words. People know people are hurting. I mean, the average Canadian salaries are around $50,000, right? I mean, you can't yeah. live on that in any major city in Canada. People are their children are doing worse, way worse than they did. Um they for the most part um and they're struggling and people are living on debt and that's yeah. um and we're not we're not speaking to that total despair that's going to get worse that's simply going to get worse so um great uh moving in the direction of left-wing populism love it and grassroots organizing mm -hmm. um yeah so uh and oh my god yeah um please gag me with a spoon before we do another focus group and have a <laughs> Have a typical have a typical voter. Remember that we gave her usually her a name. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it was Gail is... once. It was Gail <laughs> once. I've heard, I've heard uh, Gugni. I've heard uh, Gail. Yeah. I, I just, it is. <laughs> and let's know, stop. I, I really let's stop. Here's here's a thought. I want to get your riff on this, but you know we we uh, it, and we're still I'm still hearing it co coming out of NDP pundits' mouths. You know how awful liberals are. I hate the liberals. Um, I know a number because I'm, you know, you know, in a nonpartisan atmosphere of left-leaning liberals 
that mm. are looking for a home because let's yep. face it centrism is crashing and burning in this country um, that's what's happening liberalism with a small l is crashing and burning people are looking for something dramatic and an alternative and right now the only place they're lo looking or that's offering that is the right wing and the, the you know the kind of the lunatic fringe of the right wing at that so um so is there any have we finally got the message that trying to become liberals or the liberal party of canada is a non-starter do you think that's happened uh well i would say this sherry i think well i know i know that at home the way we got thirty thousand votes which was more than we got in 2018 uh in a context of lower voter turnout is that a lot of Neighbors who define themselves as liberal voters came to us, came to us big time. The, the polls were predicting, oh, we were neck and neck, right? And we're, we're modest at home. Like we weren't thumping on it. We were hearing something very different at the door. But, you know, our attitude wasn't this very toxic partisan culture, which is often supposed to say, oh, we are so much better than the liberals and the liberals suck and the Tories suck and everything the NDP does is fantastic. And you got to vote for us. Like, I mean, people's bullshit radar on that sort of stuff at home is very astute and they will just stop the conversation and say, you know, I'm not interested in partisan screeching and talking points. So it, are we seeing the collapse of the center in our politics? Absolutely. Absolutely. I even heard it when I was canvassing the federal election for a federal candidate, surprising amount of women identified voters telling me they cannot stand the prime minister. That is a shock compared to when I was on the doors in 2015, and it was completely the opposite. So there's a hollowing out of their project. People are craving substance. They want real, bold ideas that they think are realizable and, and doable. And I actually think the NDP can become a home for a big, big gamut of progressives to boldly say, look, this is what a social democratic economy would look like. This is what it has looked like in history. We could actually say, there is a public option for your mobile phone. There's a public option for your auto insurance. There's a public option for your key medical and health needs. And, and these public services or cooperative services, if you do them in conjunction with community organizations, they are actually going to meet your needs. They're not going to prey upon you and gouge you. Uh, and we are going to do it in spite of what capital and the big, big business folk want. Like we're going to do this and there's still going to be market share. This is not a full communist society that we're talking about here, but, but it is revolutionary in our age because we've gotten so accustomed to austerity thinking that, you know, proposing mild piecemeal reform has often been the solution, even from our party, if we're honest. Right. So let's not do that. In the last election, we actually had some good, bold ideas, but my beef in the last election was when we were communicating at the provincial level, it was often this, harsh partisan thing of we're great because we want to give you dental care better even than what we negotiated federally. And we're going to do it because the liberals and the Tories suck, right? You just, you lose the audience at the last part, but you should say on that last end of the arms, I met someone last night in a building who is living in dental pain. And tomorrow she will be going as a senior citizen to the emergency room to have a tooth pulled. It's disrespectful for her. And it's costly for our healthcare system. So we need you to support our plan. We need you to vote for the NDP because people deserve better. And you know what? If it involves going to affluent people like myself and make a decent salary as an MPP and telling them you got to pay more in tax, let's just be straight with people and say, that's what we're going to do. And we're not going to mince words about it, right? Uh, I actually think 
you know, when I think about the success of friends of mine who worked in the Sanders campaign, friends of mine who worked with Podemos in Spain, the Corbyn movement, uh, I have friends in Latin America, one of which was just elected in a, a major uh, Chilean city, um, Valdivia, and, and her vision was, look, you don't get something for nothing. I can't translate into Spanish. I don't speak Spanish very well, but you don't get something for nothing. Yes, I'm going to be coming to you for higher property taxes, but this is what I'm going to do with it. You're going to have better transit. You're going to have more opportunities for your small business. The city is going to be cleaner. It is going to be fairer. We're not going to throw all the extra funds to the cops. We're going to make sure that there are community workers for people in mental health crisis. And people elected her in droves. It was a fantastic campaign. Uh, Carla Antman Fauci, if people want to look her up. She's related to this same movement that elected Gabriel Boris, the president of that country. So, I mean, I think our party needs to move in that direction, that direction. And I think if we do, and we really get our members excited, there is no shortage of what we can accomplish in this province. Um, people are ready for this, but we just have to be willing to buy in. Why? Okay. So here's a question, Joel. I just came back from BC because I, I was speaking out there and um there, they are running a city. We have municipal elections coming up. Um, there, they're uh, on the left. They're actually running socialist candidates who have a, a shot at winning. Um, mm -hmm. Why is the NDP? I mean, you mentioned Bernie Saunders can call himself a socialist. He doesn't blush. He doesn't stammer. He uses the S word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you talk about social democratic. Um, I, I, like, yeah. Can, do you think? You know, and this will be the last question. Do you think we can start using the S socialist word and start explaining what that means? I, I also yeah. was in Spain for all of May, and trust me, it's not a bad word throughout Europe. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's uh, for some reason we just we still are hurting from, you know, the CCF days when every when the argument went that somebody thought one of those C's stood for communist. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's time. Right. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I spent many years, uh, you know, in socialist, organized socialist politics in Toronto. I define myself as socialist, Sherry. But when I talk about like a social democratic vision for the economy, it's because I know our party, the NDP, is a big tent. It includes people like us who would define ourselves as socialists. But because we're campaigners, we don't like the goal for me is not to take my pamphlet and shove it down the throat of another party member and hector at them until they agree with me or they buy my newspaper or whatever, right? Like an organizer thinks about how do we build a mass movement to really change society? So I've, I use language intentionally, which I hope at least that's the goal can reach a lot of different people and can allow me to listen to them as they react to what I say. And I listen to them so we can build a bold project for our party. So I'm proud of socialism. I mean, one of my best friends uh, is Avi Lewis in the party and his dad, you know, Stephen and the, Stephen's dad, David. And, you know, that that is a legacy that comes from the Bundes movement, uh, the Bundes movement of Jewish immigration to our country. It's a hugely influential part of our party, big part of our story going back a very long time. So I'm proud of that. But do I think everybody needs to think like me to be part of a bold project? No, I don't. Like, I actually think... If you looked at what we were proposing in Ontario in the last election on housing, having uh, rent control apply from tenant to tenant, um, on dental care uh, and access to pharmaceutical care, we were we were campaigning on a very bold platform that would bring socialists, social democratic, and even people who are to the right of that in our party, more who might otherwise be in the liberals, right? Our issue wasn't that we didn't have good ideas. 
or that we didn't think of ourselves as, as socialists per se, our hangup was organizing. Our hangup was like keyboard warriorism. Like so many folks in our party beloved to me, I know, but they are great on Twitter, but they have lost the ability to talk to another human being. We, we can rip each other's faces off at the drop of a hat on social media and get tons of likes and shares for embarrassing or shaming or dunking on somebody. But we can't seem to fathom the notion of having a conversation with someone who thinks differently than ourselves. And that's a real gap because if we, like the internet age offers us so many tools to generalize and share ideas and information, it's incredibly rich with opportunity, but it's also a trap if we forget to knock on that door or we forget to stretch ourselves a bit. So we talk to me. The whole reason I got convinced by friends to run in the first place for years, I said, no, was, you know, good people who I love said, Joel, this is the only way you will be compelled to talk to people you would never talk to otherwise. And if you really are about big organizing, then do it, run for this job and we will keep you on a short leash and, and we're going to do some great things. And that's why I'm here. And I just want more people in our party to think like that. I, but I, I'm proud to be a socialist, Sherry. I'm proud of that tradition. Um, and I, I think, you know, every time May Day comes around, May 1st, and have the occasion to talk to elders back home, been part of keeping that flame alive of socialism and what it means, uh, I am very proud of it. And, and I think we have to continue to find ways to talk about that. And you know what? Maybe this isn't even an argument if you're I'm younger than 25. <laughs> Maybe, maybe no, this it's is actually a popular word in Canada. It's actually goes really well. Um, I just I, I, and you know, this has been a total pleasure talking to Joel Harden, MPP um, for the NDP in Ottawa Centre, um, and in many ways, yeah, a true uh, soulmate. I was going to say comrade, but I better r roll that back. I'm down with comrade. <laughs> I'm down with comrade. Hey, union movement, and even our, our military use the word. Um, it's That's nothing right. wrong with it. Um, uh, the one thing that was really missing, um, I thought, and I've heard um, from that platform uh, that is provincial, so there's no excuse, uh, is is free tuition. Um, 20, I agree. Uh, you know, free tuition, and uh, I, I mean, we should not be gouging our university students. Um, this is... And again, we're looking at dozens of countries that offer free tuition and in fact, pay, mm -hmm. pay students to go to school. Um, and so, you know, why not do something like that? But hey, just a suggestion. Anyway, I, I agree, sure, but, Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and the membership has three times voted for this in Ontario, three times. And, and what happens is the consultants step in the room and say, oh, we've done focus group testing about this and people aren't there. Yes, they are. If you explain it's for college diplomas, skilled trades, university, and yeah, we're going to tax people when you have a career and you're rolling, but we're not going to tax you when you're learning and, and you're not able to pay. It's not complicated, but it has to apply to everybody. And we have to be able to speak about post-secondary education in a way that's inclusive. Yeah. A total pleasure. Uh, Joel Harden, uh, MPP, Ottawa Centre. This is the Radical Reverend show you've been listening to. Uh, do keep listening. More to come. And Joel, I, I'm looking forward to seeing you around. I gather there are lobby days coming up. Please tell me when they are. I will be there. I'm planning on getting more involved in the party. I've had my hiatus, so I will see you and um, and uh, hopefully work shoulder to shoulder to, to change this reality we live in. All the best, Mr. Harden. Thank oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank oh, you. my goodness, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everybody. You too. Bye-bye. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM. Celebrating 35 years 
as the sound of your city. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show and welcome to the first show of the season again out there in listener land. And of course, we're broadcasting from Buffalo to Barrie and Kitchener to Coburg, as always, on CIUT. Um, I want to thank uh, Joel Harden, MVP, for being on uh, the first part of the show. What a delight to speak to him and his life. But now we're doing something completely different. We are switching gears. And this will be, by the way, the theme for this fall on the Radical Reverend. We're going from politics, the radical part of me maybe, to the reverend part of me. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about spirituality and a wonderful new book that's been written by Jennifer Jinx Hoffman called the Light of God's Shadow, Musing Stories and Poems on Waking Up. And I have uh, Jinx Hoffman with me now. Welcome, Jinx, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's talk. You are a spiritual director. And I know, because, you know, I'm clergy, what that is. But there may be people out there in listener land that just... You know, they think, what? What is that? Um, what do you do and why is it so important? And and maybe just talk about how this is different from therapy. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I am also a psychotherapist, Sherry, and I kind of feel like um, I'm listening to God and obeying God all my life, whatever that means. Because when, when I say God, I don't really know what I mean by God, but what I believe to be a deep interior core. And I practiced as a psychotherapist for many, many years, but I began to get a feeling like I wanted to go a bit deeper and something a bit different was calling me. Now, this is not to say that psychotherapy is not extremely deep, but I found myself wanting to leave silence in the sessions a lot more of the time. I found myself wanting to pray in the sessions, not even really knowing what or to whom I was praying, but perhaps invoking something bigger than me or the person I was sitting with. And so I found myself thinking about training as a spiritual director and at the time, actually, I'm Jewish, and there were no Jewish training programs for spiritual directors in North America. And so I went to look at what was available in Toronto, and there was a wonderful training program at the U of T, and I was just about to sign up for that program when I got a call from a friend of mine saying, we're going to be offering our first ever training program for spiritual direction for Jewish people. So, of course, I signed up. Um, so what is spiritual direction? I've sort of said a little bit already. It's very deep listening, Sherry, very, very deep listening to ourselves and the other, leaving lots and lots of space and as the spiritual director, and by the way, I'm not a director because director implies that I know where we should go. And of course I don't, I'm a companion. And so as a companion, 
I listen deeply to the person I'm sitting with. And when I see something that seems to be calling for attention, I say, can we stop here? And then we go silent, or I may even find a prayer arising from me, like a poem that arises. And we listen for the deeper wisdom. I have, I have atheists who work with me, lots of non-Jewish people. So it's, it's quite different and not different from psychotherapy, really. Speaking here to uh, Jennifer Jinx Hoffman about her book, uh, The Light of God's Shadow, on the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, that helps a lot. Uh, and, and the title of your of your book, um, The Light of God's Shadow, also has a su subtitle, Musing Stories and Poems on Waking Up. What does that mean, waking up to you? Okay. Well, waking up really means becoming conscious. And... Um, Carl Jung said, simply life goes better with consciousness. And that's so true, isn't it? Um, and all of us are primarily unconscious and primarily run by our unconsciousness. So waking up means becoming conscious of who we are, all the parts of ourselves, and learning to work to contain the parts of ourselves that are less than wonderful and learning more about the wonderful, magnificent parts of ourselves we don't know so that we are more able to be awake and present in the moment, Cherry. So now as I bring myself into this moment with you, I haven't met you. It's the first time I've seen you. I'm looking at you there across the screen. Um, we're both present in this moment, which I see as sacred. And the more I work on what I call my schmutz, which is the kind of messy parts of myself, the more I am likely to be able to really pay attention to myself and to you. And the less my wounds and childhood problems and feelings of messiness and inadequacy are likely to impinge on this moment. Thank you for that. That was quite beautiful. Speaking here to Jennifer Jinx Hoffman. Would you share something, an excerpt from your book with us? Uh, and I've totally left this up to you. I love the book. It's a mix of poetry, but it's also a mix of your life, um, uh, some essays about your experiences. Uh, so what have you picked to share with us? So, you know, it's interesting, Sherry. You told me you wanted me to do that. And I've, I've done quite a few presentations. And each one is completely different. So I kind of, I didn't even actually pray, but I think I was prayerful, mindful when I went to prepare for this. And it, I might as well have said, hey, God, help me pick some things to bring to Sherry's in my conversation. So each time I present, I do different things. So 
I have them all ready to go here. I've got kind of pink stickies in my book and we won't get to all of them. I do know that. Um, but I'm going to see right now here in the moment what's, what's real, what, where I'm called to. Okay. So I'm going to read some prose. And the prose is called The Divine. And if you're interested, Chariots on page 69. Even though I cannot know the divine, I believe that God is everything. The breath that creates existence moment to moment, the great intelligence wanting to know itself through the minds and souls of humans, the source of love and light, all that is dark and frightening, and the mother of extreme nudging. The one includes humans, ants, grass blades, and even old pine tables that we know to be particles of living matter. How does the divine keep creating life, revealing God's self? I suspect that life is God's ongoing experiment that has resulted in some abysmal failures, but many more spectacular successes. Simply put, God is the oneness of existence, the divine spark in each of us, and in everything else too. For me, God is an experience, and despite the less than charming aspects of the Holy One, I'm in love with the beloved. For more than 40 years, in my desire to be conscious and present to life as it is, I have been listening to God through my life, in my thoughts, body, emotions, and dreams. And Sherry, I want to then read something on page 70 called A Different Lens, because it talks very much about waking up in a very practical, down-to-earth way, which is for me what spiritual life is. Spiritual life is so, so here and now, practical, pragmatic, real. My friend Bev, a psychotherapist, reminisces about a period in her life some years ago when in minor crisis, she had sought the support and insight provided by a mature psychotherapy group. I comment on how smart she was to seek a compassionate environment where she could listen deeply to others and to herself. Bev muses as we walk. I received a great deal from the group. I am in a good place now, so I don't need it anymore. But I miss the way I used to feel after each session. Her voice becomes quieter. I would say I was humanized more deeply. During and after sessions, I saw people and the world through a different lens. I seem 
to have somewhat misplaced that lens. And I'll stop there, Sherry. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, that was, if you're just tuning in, uh, an excerpt from The Light of God's Shadow a book, a wonderful book by Jennifer Jinks Hoffman, spiritual director. Uh, and to go back to the first excerpt that you read uh, about God, um, and you use godding as a, you didn't you re read that part, but I, I love that word, godding. I have to work that in somehow into something. Um, I but I, 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 you probably get this question because, you know, with those that you walk with, um, if not in life. But uh, the question of, you know, I don't, people usually say, I just don't believe in God. And then my next question to them is, well, what God don't you believe in? And it, if they and, and as they describe the God that they don't believe in, I can usually say almost all of the time, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> so, so what I, I mean, does that happen to you? And uh, and I love I love the way you go at attempting to describe the indescribable. So, say something about that. Thank you. Um, you know, usually people who land up in my room are people who have some kind of spiritual bent and spiritual life. Um, as I say, I definitely have people who don't believe in God. And um, that that's just fine with me. But I do always ask people, what do you call your deepest wisdom? What do you call that deep interior voice in you that knows more than you do, that, that you seek? for guidance or for inspiration. And lots of people don't think that way either. So, you know, it's so much an in the here and now um, experience between me and the other person. I don't, of course, don't need them to believe anything. Uh, uh, most people who might say, I don't believe in God, I love your question, what kind of God don't you believe in? I bet if I asked that question, I'd probably have much the same thing to say to them as you do. Um, because it sounds like your God is pretty similar to my God, I would bet. I'm sure, I'm sure they've met. I'm sure they might have had tea together. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking yeah. to Jennifer Jinks often. Um, and one of the things that you do, which is lovely in your book, is that you share your own personal journey, your own life, which started in South Africa, has led you across continents. And your family sounds, you know, wonderful and diverse. Uh, you have a son who's in Israel and, you know, any many other stories. Uh, why did you do that? Why did you incorporate so much of you in this book? Is that important? Oh, that's a great question, Sherry. You know, it wasn't my intention. My intention was to write, my first book is a book of only poetry. And my first book is called, It's All God Anyway, um, Poems for the Everyday. And I'm, I actually am primarily a poet. So I had the idea of writing this. I didn't actually want to write a second book. I absolutely did not want to write a second book. But then it seemed like these poems were arriving in response to the teachings of six magnificent teachers of contemporary Jewish mysticism. So I thought, okay, then, okay, okay, I said to the mother of extreme nudging, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I 
set out to write a second book of poetry. And then my world fell apart, Sherry. And I really describe that in the book. Um, it was May 2019, and I went through something that I describe in the book as the time of dread when I was visited by some dark force that to this day I do not understand. Some might call it the dark night of the soul. Some might call it God's dark shadow. I don't understand, but it was a period of intense darkness that arrived, it just arrived, and four months later, just left. The most bizarre thing, and it's never happened to me before or since. Two weeks later, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. And some said to me, your body was trying to tell you, you were going to have something very dark happen to you. And that may be true. You know, in the book, one of the pieces I picked to read, but it's also prose, is called A Big Fat I Don't Know. And really, I feel I know so little. I, can, I can't say I know anything. That said, I got cancer. Then COVID arrived in the world, and everybody was profoundly impacted by COVID, myself included. And then the worst thing, Sherry, that ever happened to Alan, my husband, and me, was that our oldest son, Ellie, died. And so I was in a very, very dark place, and I actually wrote my way out of that dark place. And it turned out that I needed to write prose and poetry, and I found myself a magnificent editor who helped me hear what the book was telling me. So I had no idea, uh, no intention of writing all about myself. I would have said that was self-indulgent and narcissistic and who's interested anyway. But turns out people have read the book and related very much, mostly to my vulnerability, mostly to my struggles, and have felt really grateful that I put that on paper because they have found that very encouraging and supportive. So that's why it's a sort of sort of memoir, although I had no intention of writing one. Uh, speaking here again to Jennifer Jinx Hoffman about her, her book, lovely book, please uh, read it and buy it, The Light of God's Shadow. Uh, you have another excerpt for us, Jinx. Sure. Another excerpt? Yes. Yes, I would actually love to read a poem. So this poem is called Grace. And it begins with an epigraph. Every single one of my poems begins with an epigraph. And the epigraph is taken from the writings of these six magnificent teachers. You and might this... want to list them right now because we're... It, who are they? Who were they? Okay, so they... They are, because they're still my teachers, um, Michael Fishbane, Lawrence Kushner, Arthur Green, Sanford Drob, Malila Helner-Eshed, and Teresa Firestone. Thank you. And four of them are, three of them are rabbis and three aren't. Um, 
this one, this um, epigraph is by Sanford Grubb, and the epigraph is, it is an illusion for us to believe that we have a complete or even true view of God. And here's the poem. You look different, Grace, from how I usually see you behind the counter, your red uniform, name tag. You seem radiant here as we pass on Bathurst Street, almost noble. The nose ring you don't wear when you're bagging groceries catches the sun. Your gel-studded spiky hair, boots black, jeans tight. Is this your girlfriend? She smiles and nods as you talk and talk and talk. I nod at you, Grace, but you don't see me. I'm of that age where I blend into the surroundings. Dollar store on the corner, shoppers drag marts, in line for coffee at second cup. I know your God, Grace. If you knew I am, would you also get goosebumps as we pass me on my daily old lady walk, you with your wild, defiant beauty and your girlfriend smiling and nodding at God. Beautiful, and thank you for that. Uh, again, a reading from The Light of God's Shadow by Jennifer Jinx Hoffman, who I am speaking to. And it has been a pleasure. Astoundingly, Jinx, we only have a couple of moments left. <laughs> so I will leave it to you as to how to, to, to spend them. What what's important? Why why do you think this this book should be read? Well, I I would actually say I don't think this book should be read. <laughs> I want it to be read. Of course, I do. My ego wants me to sell millions of copies, right? Um, and of I'd love that. I'd love that. Uh, I want it to be read, Sherry. I. I'm incredibly moved by the fact that I've received a lot of letters and notes from people saying, this has helped me. Thank you. And I'm going to reread it because it helps me. And, and I, as I said earlier, I think it helps people to incorporate their dark and their light. The book is about the dark and light of life, of the divine, of each of one of us, where it's all so complex, such a mess of things. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled to think there are a few people who've said, this is, this is helpful. And I'm certainly one of them. And you will be too out there in listener land if you pick it up and read it. Uh, so as always, I love your, your questions, comments, uh, anything you send to the show will be responded to. And of course, this show goes to podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, uh, Jinx, so much for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And to all of you out there, have a, an amazing, amazing week until we meet again. Take care.